Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. And getting deeper all the time, apparently. Ladies and gentlemen, um, some of the hype surrounding modern, current technological practices is dissipating, and some is reforming. First, from uh, Advertising Age, the Disney Company, which uh, I guess is feeling its oats after spitting in the face of the Florida governor, um, is pulling in its horns in the overhyped world of the metaverse. You've heard of the metaverse, surely? Or ask surely if you haven't. Disney laid off the high-tech team formed by its previous CEO, Bob Chapek, just last year. That didn't take long. Like so many companies, Disney is readjusting its priorities away from risky bets in extended reality. When did you think you'd hear that from uh, Ad Age? Focusing more on its core products of video streaming parks and movies amid a strained economy. I said, strained economy. The move makes Walt Disney Company the latest major media company to put distance between itself and the metaverse. It's two um, blocks down on the right. It's leaving the advertising world to wonder what's next and what went wrong. I, um, I can suggest one thing. Hype. The retreat is another blow to the early optimism that fueled the interest in Web3 during the past two years. Metaverse, like NFT and crypto, has become a sullied word in some circles. I've been doing some sullying myself. The spectacular collapse of crypto exchange FTX exposed the unregulated nature of cryptocurrencies, NFTs, the digital assets powered by crypto payments, have been tainted by frequent scams and questionable utility. Remember when you first heard about NFTs and wondered, what the hell are they good for? Well, you've just been recognized. The metaverse, despite all the attention brought to it, has never quite taken off, despite Meta changed its corporate name from Facebook a couple of years ago. The uh, head of Meta, Mr. Zuckerberg, has had to assure investors that pie-in-the-sky projects would not detract from its main business of surveilling its customers. Meta has also undergone significant layoffs, and a couple months ago, Microsoft cut its Metaverse team as part of a round of layoffs. Meta also stopped supporting NFT integrations on Facebook and Instagram, making it even harder to know what they're for. The uh, social network introduced those digital collectibles to much fanfare last year. I didn't hear that. The idea was that NFT holders could connect their crypto wallets to Facebook and Instagram and they could display their virtual valuables. Brands are wary of associating themselves with NFTs now, 
but they're still intrigued by the possibility of creating proprietary digital merchandise. Nobody has really defined the metaverse, said the co-president of creative advertising at a brand and digital design studio. It's a complex concept that now has a negative connotation in some ways, she says. Skepticism of the metaverse doesn't mean that brand activation using Web 3 or augmented reality is dead, she continued. It might just mean that major brands like Disney are waiting to re-strategize ways to apply these technologies effectively. The ultimate ideal of the metaverse, you might want to take notes on this, is to create multiple interconnected online worlds, allow people to switch between work games and socializing in virtual reality, and to create a new economy in this digital world, which also ties back to real-world products, services, and events. The project is based on a principle of decentralization where the masses control the environments and their experiences. Sounds a little Marxist to me. The reality is much different. So far, it seems the most vibrant digital worlds have been in video games. There's clearly still momentum in immersive entertainment. This week, Apple sent invites to its next developer conference a couple months away, expected to reveal its mixed reality headset, which has been in the works for years. So you can put something stupid on your face from Apple. Disney never quite defined what its metaverse strategy was. The former CEO vaguely discussed uniting Disney's real-life properties with virtual reality. You'll find a virtual parking space for Disney World. I'm just guessing there. Disney declined to comment on the story of them withdrawing from the metaverse, but they've been laying off people like it's going out of style. A senior technical program manager on Disney's Next Generation Storytelling team posted on LinkedIn this, I'll cut to the chase. Yes, the secret and super amazing project I was working on at Disney has been shut down. Unquote. On the other hand, and there is another hand, news floated out this week sort of evanescently that a um, tech world hedge fund was considering buying FTX, the uh, crypto company, out of bankruptcy, bringing it back from the dead. Hello, welcome to the show.
From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. Looks like Elon Musk took to the stage in an advertising conference this week. He's trying to reassure attendees that Twitter is a safe place to, my favorite word in the context, serve ads. I'd say fling, but that's just me. While also warning the business won't bow to pressure from advertisers, the biz being Twitter, who want to dictate its behavior. Speaking with the chairman of 
Advertising and Partnerships at NBC, Linda Yaccarino, I just read him, Musk reportedly said freedom of speech at Twitter was paramount. Oh, that's a different company. And the company was willing to lose money if it meant protecting that right. When it can um, charge you for a blue thing that does and says nothing. So they can make up their money that way. Quote, what we're trying to achieve here is a sensible middle ground, or we're trying to satisfy a range of things, which is how to ensure the public has their voice but also that you are able to serve your brands and improve the perception of your brands and your sales as well, Musk said. But it's not cool to say what Twitter will do, unquote. The early days at Musk's Twitter were marked, as you probably have heard, by an exodus of advertisers. Close the door on your way out, who were responsible for some 90% of Twitter's revenue before Musk took over. Multiple major advertising agencies urged their clients to pause Twitter ads as of November last year, citing concerns the platform wouldn't be able to ensure brand safety. That's um, ad biz talk for not wanting your ad to appear adjacent to some racist rant. This is um, reacting to a spike in hate speech shortly after Twitter got its new owner. This is uh, reported by the British tech journal The Register. Musk even opted to publicly call out some advertisers asking if Apple hated, quote, free speech in America, unquote, due to its advertising pause on Twitter. That pause has now ended. Twitter attempted to lure advertisers back the end of the last year with spend matching. It's unclear how much of an effect that's had. Why don't you just pay your users? We're creating the stuff that, according to Musk's recent interview on the BBC, most of Twitter's advertisers have returned, though that's not necessarily backed up by third-party data according to uh, the Register, British Tech Journal. As of January, Twitter's daily revenue was down more than 40%, much of that loss attributable to the departure of advertisers. Musk claimed to the BBC that Twitter was at a break-even point financially, though without offering anything to suggest that that's actually the case. Well, that's just about facts. More than half of Twitter's top thousand, thousand advertisers as of February have yet to return. Of Twitter's top ten advertising clients, only six still serve, I mean, fling ads through Twitter. When pushed on Twitter's hate speech issues and content moderation concerns, Musk reiterated what he's been saying since shortly after buying Twitter. Quote, freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. We'll all spend a little time this afternoon trying to figure out what that means. Quote, you won't find a negative or hateful tweet unless you specifically seek it out, which is no different than the rest of the Internet, Musk said in November. More recently, he told Yaccarino, 
hi ho yeah, I'm sorry, that hateful content on Twitter won't be amplified or recommended to people, but outside of violating Twitter's shrinking list of what it classifies as hateful conduct, it doesn't appear the platform will scrub such rhetoric from its servers. It's not entirely clear that Twitter is following through on its own assertions that it will not promote hate speech. According to an analysis of Twitter's recommendation algorithm and content delivered for the For You feed of recommended content, hate speech was regularly promoted in the recommended feed when a single account associated with an extremist group was followed. That's to say, if you follow one extremist account, Twitter will fill your For You feed with hate speech. If Twitter is trying to get rid of reactionary echo chambers, it doesn't appear to be succeeding. Twitter disbanded its Trust and Safety Council, a group of 100 civil rights organizations who signed on to help tackle hate speech and child exploitation on the site. Last November, Twitter claimed the council wasn't the best way to ensure that Twitter was safe. That may have um, been among the factors that led German officials saying there were sufficient indications of failures in policing hate speech on Twitter, which could result in a fine of up to 50 million euros. That's not nothing. Sure, it's euros, but it's not nothing. The EU has also expressed concerns that Twitter may be violating its content moderation rules under the Digital Services Act. You can't, there are two people you can't keep out of the news, ladies and gentlemen. Donald Trump and Elon Musk. And they like it that way. And I do too. Might as well uh, be honest about the whole thing. Now some... Uh, News of microplastics. It's been understood for some time that microplastics provide a protective environment, the so-called plastosphere, in which bacteria can survive in wastewater. For the first time, researchers at the University of Stirling in Scotland have tracked how that could enable bacteria to survive the journey to the sea and make their way onto our beaches where they can come into contact with humans. Hello, bacteria. This is from the Microbiology Society. A uh, couple of researchers subjected microplastics colonies by bacteria in wastewater to the different environments they would likely pass through on their way to our beaches. They found that not only could bacteria such as E. coli survive the entire journey, but that viable bacteria survived for seven days on the sand. Well, just bring a blanket. The plastic is providing a substrate for transferring pathogens from wastewater through river water, estuary, and seawater, and finally up onto the beaches where they're much more likely to come into contact with humans. Other surfaces, that's one of the researchers telling you what she found. Other surfaces where bacteria colonize, such as seaweed, wouldn't necessarily go through that transfer route. I guess that's good news for seaweed. 
I really am making that up. Concerned by their findings, one of the researchers wanted to see if this theoretical survivor was happening on real beaches in Scotland. The team collected polyethylene and polystyrene waste from 10 Scottish beaches and screened them for seven target bacteria that cause disease in humans. Alarmingly, it says here, they found that these bacteria were present in virtually all of the samples, some showing resistance to the most commonly used antibiotics. This is worrying in light of sewage leaks and wastewater overflows onto our beaches. We already have sewage ending up in the environment that contains harmful bacteria, but the plastics are transporting bacteria into places where they're more likely to come into contact with people, says the head researcher, hoping that uh, the research will add to the support for increasing public awareness. Good luck with that. And ultimately push towards legislative changes for plastic discharge to the environment. Just one word, ladies and gentlemen. Microplastics. And now, next on the show, a little thing called News of Inspectors General. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no suits. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Well, here's the here's the skinny from the Inspector General, who's probably most familiar to the show listeners because I've shared his reports throughout the life of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars in which uh, we've been active. John Sopko is his name. He's, uh, he's the inspector general, as a matter of fact, just for Afghanistan. He didn't do Iraq. He accused the Biden administration this week of stonewalling his efforts to procure records about assistance to Afghanistan since the U.S. skedaddled. He warns that American taxpayer dollars are probably ending up in the hands of the Taliban. You could just skip the war and give them the money. Why didn't we think of that before? I cannot assure the committee or the American taxpayer we are not currently funding the Taliban, said John Sopko at a House Oversight Committee hearing, nor can I assure you the Taliban are not diverting the money we're sending from the intended recipients. He ticked off ways in which Taliban fighters were siphoning off goods and funds entering Afghanistan, such as by diverting food assistance and by forcing groups to pay fees to operate in the country. Sopko blamed weak oversight practices within the international organizations handling Afghan assistance, and he criticized what he called the abject refusal of the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, to allow oversight. Who wants that? Quote, we used to brief on a regular basis, unquote, Sopko said of his prior engagements with the State Department and USAID and the Pentagon. 
He lamented a lack of access to records on what he said was over $8 billion in U.S. aid that had been provided to Afghanistan since the evacuation. Since this administration came in, it's been radio silence, he said. Well, it's better than AM radio and cars. I'll explain later. The Biden administration pushed back on the allegations, effectively accusing the inspector general of misrepresenting the extent to which the administration has accommodated his requests and presuming to have a broader mandate than he actually gets under the law. A State Department spokesman said U.S. reconstruction activities in Afghanistan, which is the sort of the hook of uh, SOPCO's jurisdiction, ceased after the Taliban took over a couple years ago. We don't want to be reconstructing them. A uh, representative of USAID says, we're frequently and regularly working with the uh, special inspector general, the CIGAR, for Afghanistan reconstruction on their requests. Not saying that they accommodate them, but we're, we're working on them. News of these inspectors general, ladies and gentlemen. It's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
From New Orleans, this is Le Show. And speaking of New Orleans, it was 13 years ago this week, a rig contracted by the oil and gas company BP to drill in the deep waters of the Gulf of Mexico blew up, spewing more than 200 million gallons of oil. Eleven workers were killed that day. Some argue that the spill's death toll could be far higher and underreported as cleanup workers soon started to develop illnesses they claim are linked to exposure to toxins in the oil, as well as Corexit, the chemical that was used by BP to break up the oil slicks, at least to make them less visible. During the 87 days that oil gushed from the seafloor, lower-income workers in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida picked up tar balls from beaches, sopped up oil with absorbent booms, decontaminated boats, and burned oil on the water's surface. They also rescued wildlife, including oiled birds, sea turtles, and dolphins. Some were Vietnamese fishers put out of work when Gulf waters were close to shrimping, Others were Cajun construction workers and black cowboys. Most had livelihoods that depended on the Gulf. Those contractors worked the spill for weeks or months at a time. About 30% of them had annual household incomes under 20 grand a year. That's according to demographic data collected by the National Institutes of Health. BP, the oil company involved, told many of its cleanup workers that they did not need to wear breathing protection because the toxic components of the oil had evaporated or were broken down in the waves. That's according to the company's safety briefings. Despite receiving aid from the federal government to conduct biological monitoring by measuring toxins in the cleanup workers' blood, skin, or urine, BP didn't collect evidence that could have shown whether toxics contained in the oil had entered workers' bloodstreams. That's according to attorneys for some of the workers who are now suing BP. You might um, ask yourself if you've heard any of this, what's going to follow before in any of the uh, media you follow. In 2010, BP ran a huge PR campaign to convince the public that the Gulf would recover. While the smell of oil and Corexit were still in the air, BP was already building its legal defense against the very workers it claimed were repairing the spill's environmental damage. That's according to new evidence reported for the first time. No, not by them. Not them either. No. Reported for the first time by the British newspaper The Guardian. There is no class-action settlement for the cleanup workers and coastal residents who fell ill years after the spill. Due to the terms of an earlier settlement, they must sue BP individually to be compensated for their chronic injuries. Many of the cases are under a court order that prevents them from seeking punitive damages. BP declined to comment on a series of detailed questions from The Guardian, citing the ongoing litigation. A district court judge found the company that made the Corexit used during the spill, Nalco, was not liable for medical claims related to the use of its product during the spill 
because the use was approved by the federal government, according to court documents. Ecolab purchased the company in 2011, but later sold it to Corexit Environmental Solutions when, con- when contacted by The Guardian. Corexit Environmental Solutions said it was never involved in any decisions related to the use of its product in the Gulf. BP paid $65 million to 22,000 people in the earlier medical settlement for short-term illnesses, less than 3,000 per person on average, according to a claims administrator update four years ago. The company also spent more than $60 billion to resolve economic and natural resources claims from the spill, as well as civil penalties under the Clean Water Act. But in the cases of longer-term health problems, the odds, says the newspaper, have not been in plaintiff's favor. BP has taken a, quote, scorched earth, unquote, approach to each lawsuit, said uh, an attorney who has filed about 600 medical cases against BP, Jerry Sprague. According to um, court records, nearly 5,000 cases had been filed By January 2020, the company has hired experts in hundreds of cases and in certain instances deposed plaintiffs and their doctors for hours, combing over their medical records, tax returns, and employment files. Quote, the uh, attorney for some of the plaintiffs, BP wants us to know they will fight these cases to the end. Unquote. In court, BP has argued that without biological evidence, workers and coastal residents cannot prove their illnesses were caused by the oil spill, despite research linking exposure to the spill with increased risk of cancer and higher rates of long-term respiratory conditions, heart disease, headaches, memory loss, memory loss, and blurred vision, and memory loss. Thousands of cases have been dismissed, According to plaintiff lawyers, only one known case has resulted in settlement. Quote, it's by far the most gut-wrenching public health disaster that I've ever been exposed to. That's, unquote, the legal director for the Government Accountability Project, which has produced several reports based on interviews with sick cleanup workers. What's particularly frustrating, he says, is that BP doesn't care. As I say, not reported in uh, any American media, but uh, it is featured in the British newspaper, The Guardian, about which more in a moment. Here's the Apologies of the Week. Here are the Apologies of the Week. Get your plurals and your verbs agreeing, won't you? Me? The owner of The Guardian has issued an apology for the role the newspaper's founders had in transatlantic slavery. They announced a decade-long program of restorative justice. The Scott Trust had expected to invest more than $12.3 million, millions dedicated specifically to descendant communities linked to the Guardian's 
19th century founders. It follows independent academic research commissioned three years ago to investigate whether there was any historical connection between chattel slavery and John Edward Taylor, a journalist and cotton merchant who founded The Guardian in 1821, and the other Manchester businessmen who funded its creation. The Scott Trust Legacies of Enslavement report, published this week, revealed that Taylor and at least nine of his 11 backers had links to slavery, particularly through the textile industry. Taylor had multiple links through partnerships in the cotton manufacturing firm Oakden & Taylor and the cotton merchant company Shuttleworth Taylor & Company, which imported vast amounts of raw cotton produced by enslaved people in the Americas. Researchers from two universities were able to identify Taylor's links to plantation in this, plantations in the Sea Islands, that's along the coast of South Carolina and Georgia. After reviewing an invoice book showing that Shuttleworth Taylor and Company received cotton from the region, which included the initials and names of plantation owners and enslavers. Another of the Guardian's early financiers, a West India merchant, co-owned a sugar plantation in Hanover, Jamaica. He unsuccessfully attempted to claim compensation from the British government in 1835 for what he regarded as the loss of his human property, 108 people. Along an, uh, alongside an apology to the affected communities identified in the research and surviving descendants of the enslaved for the part the Guardian and its founders had in this crime against humanity, the Trust also apologized for early editorial positions that served to support the cotton industry and therefore the exploitation of enslaved people. The restorative Justice Fund will support projects in the Gullah Geechee region and in Jamaica over the next decade after consultation with reparations experts and community groups. Scott Trust said a precise figure and allocation of funds will be reported within the next 12 months. Fox News, formerly, as you probably know, apologized to the judge in the Dominion defamation case taking responsibility for the misunderstanding regarding Rupert Murdoch's role at the network. That led the judge to launch an investigation into potential legal misconduct by Fox. In a letter dated uh, last Friday and filed with the court, Fox attorney Blake Rohrbacher said the right-wing network never intended to omit information and that its accurate, inaccurate representations about Murdoch's formal road to Fox News were, quote, not meant to mislead the court or evade the question. We understand the court's concerns, apologize, and are committed to clear and full communication with the court moving forward. We should have provided the court a complete and prompt response to the court's questions concerning the identities of all Fox News officers. We apologize and never intended to avoid responding to a question from the court, unquote. Of course, the case is over. They settled. The question was, was Rupert Murdoch an officer of Fox News or only Fox Corporation? In past filings, 
When asked directly by the judge, Fox lawyers repeatedly said he didn't have an official title at Fox News. But last week, Fox disclosed he is an executive officer at Fox News. Dominion says this distinction may have narrowed what Fox turned over as part of the discovery process in the case, potentially blocking the voting technology company, Dominion, from obtaining more Murdoch-related emails and text messages. The judge was livid over Fox's misrepresentations. Now, of course, another voting technology company, Smartmatic, still has a $2 billion lawsuit against Fox, and now they know Rupert was an officer at Fox News. So, maybe not that much damage after all. Stop the Steel activist Ali Alexander has released an apology after being accused of making unwanted sexual advances and demands of young men in his political orbit. That's what it's called nowadays. His longtime ally, the white supremacist Nick Fuentes, told listeners of his podcast, sure he does, that Alexander is, quote, bowing out of public life, unquote. Quote, Alexander, I apologize for any inappropriate messages sent over the years. Forgive me. Unquote. He uh, referred to battling SSA, which appears to be an acronym for same-sex attraction, and insisted that he'd, quote, repented before God. He admitted he'd been careless in his flirtations, adding, I've flexed my credentials or dropped corny pickup lines. Nothing unlawful has occurred. He says he's been targeted by fake accusers or literal honeypots eager to frame me. The controversy... Unquote that. The controversy reflects bitter infighting among former allies in the political camp of Kanye West. How about them apples? Milo Yiannopoulos is a notorious far-right troll, this is according to Rolling Stone, who briefly advised West during his anti-Semitic blitz last year alongside Fuentes and Alexander, Yiannopoulos, reportedly blames those two, Fuentes and Alexander, for his dismissal from Kanye's potential 24 presidential bid. That's what we need right about now. Loyola University in New Orleans has apologized to a student journalist and is rescinding all disciplinary action against her for recording an interview with a campus police officer last month while reporting about the arrest of another student. An El Al airline pilot has apologized after he caused an outcry by delivering a pre-flight message likening the government's attempt to radically reshape the justice system to the events in Nazi Germany that preceded the Holocaust. This incident occurred on Israel's Holocaust Remembrance Day, drawing angry public reactions and condemnation from the national carrier, which said the message, uh, LL, which said the message doesn't reflect its values, and they promised a thorough probe. The Boston Athletic Association this week issued an apology after black members of two running clubs said they were targeted and singled out by Newton, Massachusetts police while watching 
the Boston Marathon this week. Lawyers for Civil Rights Boston sent a complaint letter to the city of Newton and the Newton Police Department after the members of these two premier running clubs spoke out about being unfairly policed along the route along Commonwealth Avenue. Members of the group claim police set out to block black people from cheering the marathon participants based on their race and identity. In a statement, the BAA officials admitted they should have done more to create a more welcoming and supportive environment along the 26-mile race route. No, race in the other sense. Sweden's biggest pension fund pledged to learn from its almost $2 billion loss stemming from the U.S. banking crisis. Executives faced pension savers for the first time since the news of its failed investments broke last month. Alekta, the pension fund in Sweden, uh, their chief executive officer, Katarina Thorslund, apologized to customers that she spoke at an annual meeting of the fund's supervisory board. To be clear, the investments in U.S. banks were a failure, and we shouldn't have ended up in that place, said Thorslund, who uh, just got the job last week as Electa let its chief executive, Magnus Billing, go. We can do better, she said. I fully understand that clients and supervisory board are disappointed, angry, and worried. We take this failure most seriously. F. Murray Abraham is apologizing after allegations of sexual misconduct led to his departure from the Apple TV Plus show Mythic Quest. Quote, this is a sincere and deeply felt apology, the actor said in a statement issued Thursday, though never my intention to offend anyone. I told jokes, nothing more, that upset some of my colleagues, and as a result lost a great job with wonderful people. I have grown in my understanding from this experience, and I hope they will Forgive me. Unquote. Don't tell jokes. Come on. You know better. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. It is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
News of the morn, won't you? Scientists have succeeded in saving samples of ancient Arctic ice. It's a nice collectible. No, but they're saving it for analysis in a race against time before it melts away. I think they mean the ice, not the time. Due to climate change, they said this week, according to Agence France Presse. The eight French, Italian, and Norwegian researchers camped in Norway's Svalbard archipelago in March in April, like just almost now, braving storms and mishaps to preserve crucial ice records that can be used to analyze what the Earth's climate looked like in the past and chart the devastating impact human activity is having on it now. The uh, Ice Memory Foundation team extracted three huge tubes of great glacier ice on Svalbard. They, like others collected by the 20-year project launched in 2015, will be preserved for future scientific analysis at a research station in Antarctica. Analyzing chemicals in such deep ice cores provides valuable data about centuries of past climatic and environmental conditions long after the original glacier has disappeared. But it is a race to preserve this ice memory. Experts warn that as global temperatures rise, meltwater is leaking into ancient ice and risks destroying the geochemical records it contains before scientists can collect the data. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. News of the ice because of the warm. Do you uh, get my drift here? And um, now... A moment of news of the godly. Former head of the Catholic German Bishops Conference, 
is giving up the country's highest honor. Following scathing criticism this week of his handling of clergy abuse cases during his tenure as Archbishop of Freiburg, sorry, Freiburg, and as a personal officer in the diocese. Robert Zolich has informed the German president in a letter he's handing back the Order of Merit, which was bestowed on him nine years ago. He said the decision was taken in connection with a statement Zolich made in October in which the 84-year-old acknowledged that he made serious errors and asked for forgiveness. An independent report commissioned by the Freiburg Archdiocese on the Church's handling of abuse cases over decades came out this week. The latest in a string of such reports casting light on church officials' actions or lack thereof in dioceses across Germany. One of its authors said that Zolich completely ignored canon law in connection with abuse cases during his time in office. He said that, for example, a cleric's breach of celibacy rules was punished, but that abuse of children wasn't penalized under church law. He said, quote, We were speechless. Zolich was responsible for personnel issues in Freiburg from 1983 until 2003. This is 20 years, ladies and gentlemen. News of the Godly, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this week's edition of the show. Back next week, same time, on your radio thing. Your time on your audio device of choice. And it'll be just like knowing that Rupert Murdoch runs Fox News after all. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. The tip of the low sha- low show chapeau. To the San Diego desk, to the Hawaii desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO New Orleans. 
for their help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, ask your dad. And um, the playlist of the music heard here on, and a lot of other stuff to read and watch and regret, all at harryshearer.com. And me? <laughs> okay, I give up. I'm still on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. No, no muscle implied. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City.